Good to have you here today. I'm going to be back in the book of Proverbs today. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 10. And um, we'll be picking it up in verse 14 here in just a few moments and uh, coming back down through it. You remember, for those of you that may be visiting today, uh, we were studying the book of Proverbs on Sunday morning. And uh, we have been coming through it pretty much verse by verse. And there's so much here, and we've been trying to lay out all the principles from a practical standpoint. A lot of it goes along with, you know, what many of you are learning, uh, you know, and helping me with ministry with people. It's always an asset. Uh, almost all of you, to some degree, are, are involved in people at some level. And uh, this is a real help to you to be able to uh, put some of the practical applications to the very work that you're, you're doing. And last week, we talked about laying up knowledge, how to define that. What does that mean? And we also talked about a person who won't do that and how that they just keep going from one issue to another, people who simply won't learn from their mistakes. I've said it many, many times. I never fault a person for making mistakes, no matter on what level they are, because we all make mistakes and we all do stupid things in life. But what I look for is a person that learns from their mistakes and grows through them and uh, instead of just trying to go around them. That's really the key. So we we talked about how that a person who won't lay up knowledge just keeps going from one issue to another, from one situation to another. And then we, the second thing we looked at was we looked at the concept of a strong city, how that a picture in the Bible is the walls that they had around the cities. And for us in our church here, It represents the strength of our church is only found in the Bible doctrine that we surround ourselves with. Basically, build our own wall of protection based on the principles and always staying with the Bible and staying within the confines of the Scripture. So that that was a great concept. The third thing that we looked at is we saw a man who was destroyed by his own poverty. And uh, in the case that we were looking at, his spiritual poverty. And we saw how that a man who chooses bad choices actually winds up in poverty spiritually uh, by his own choosing and therefore suffers the consequences of that. The fourth thing that we looked at, we saw the great principles that a righteous labor for the Lord tendeth the life. And uh, that was probably one of the greatest concepts that we talked about last week. And, um, you know, there's a great example where you hear me talk about long-term and short-term. When you have a a labor uh, of righteousness. You do something for the Lord. Uh, Most times we think of it in a short term. We think of it as, I'm going to do this for this person. I'm going to invite this person to New Year's Eve. That person comes to New Year's Eve. They say, wow, I like this group of people. So, you know, they come to church uh, and then they get saved and pretty soon, boom, they're here. That's the short term. And we've all seen that. But a, righteous, a labor of righteousness or a labor uh, of righteousness is, is in a long-term concept, too. And many times, you know, we, we forget that or we don't see that. Uh, many of you, bless your hearts, you're still young enough that you, you haven't lived long enough to see some of that come uh, to pass. Uh, a couple of, about a month ago, it was the 1st of November, uh, I went up to Monmouth, Illinois to preach up there, kind of a revival at Greg McClintock's church, and I took the, the guys up with me, uh, the old Paz boys, and they, we all had a great time up there. But th- this is a classic example of what I'm talking about because many of you probably wondered how in the world I ever got connected with Monmouth, Illinois. It was over 25 years ago, 25 years ago, 
I got a I got a letter from some people who had gotten my some of my tapes. This was long before they had websites. They had gotten some of my tapes, and they they were in a church up there that was a, a really a dead church, and it really needed a revival. And they wrote me a letter asking me uh, if I would come up there and preach a revival. Well, I didn't know anybody up there from Monmouth, Illinois, from anybody on the backside of the moon. And uh, the pastor originally called me, and I, I told him, you know, I had a lot going on right then, and I didn't, you know, didn't know that if that was a good investment for me to go. So initially I told the guy that I couldn't come. I had some other things that I legitimately had to do. About three days later, I got a letter from a lady up there, and uh, she, she just really got a hold of my heart about how that, what their church really needed. And I got so convicted about it that I called the pastor back up and I said, you know, I'll come. I, I'm going to go ahead and come. I changed my mind. I'll come. If you still want me, I'll come there. Well, I went up there. We probably had one of the greatest revivals that I've ever had in my life. And it was right in the middle of a snowstorm that, that just decimated the town and all of that area of, of Illinois. But it didn't stop the people from coming out. We packed that place out every night. And, you know, it was a great, great, great revival and a great thing that God did up there. And my point is this. When I went up there this last time in, uh, in, in, in Monmouth this, in November, so many people came that were orig- part of that original deal. Now, I got to tell you this. The church itself that I went at is still as dead as a doornail. It never did anything with anything that I did. It's still an old American Baptist church. That pastor's probably dead. Some other dingbat's in there now that doesn't know any more about the Bible than the other guy did. And it stayed right where it was at. But out of that series of meeting over the last 25, 26 years, four churches got started out of that church, out of that revival meeting. There's four young men that were called to pastor and one young man that's a missionary. There's the long term of it, you see. There's the long term that nothing happened in immediate. Nothing happened at that particular set of meetings that turned that church around or really turned anybody around overnight. But through the process of, of God using it and people that God continued to uh, put in my path and begin to uh, get into the material and begin to grow, and it all came down. And that shows you that a righteous labor for the Lord tendeth the life. And it can be in a short term or it can be in a long term. Now today we'll get into verses 19 through 22. And now we see this passage dealing with what um, comes out of our mouths. And now we're going to focus today on this passage which deals with our tongue. And again we see the context of a wise man and how he speaks and a fool and what comes out of his mouth. And basically today We're going to talk about the power of the tongue. He says in verse 18, He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth a slander is a fool. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. The tongue of the just is as choice silver, the heart of the wicked is little worth. The lips of a righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. The blessings of the Lord it maketh rich. And he addeth no sorrow with it. Now, Father, help us today as we come to your word. Lord, these are good people today, and they've come here to get something out of the word of God. And I don't know of a better practical book anywhere than all the Bible than the book of Proverbs. 
and help these people get what they need today. Help me to always be there for them. Help me to always be there to give them what they need, when they need it, to, uh, to always make them the priority of, of this church, that they can always have whatever they need to have, that they might be uh, everything to you and have that righteous ministry and that righteous life of serving you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, here again, we're going to see the contrast as we entered into Proverbs now of a positive and a negative, sometimes a negative and a positive. But uh, you're going to begin to see the connection here uh, uh, between uh, what's in our heart and what will ultimately come out of our mouth. Now, along with this text today, uh, I want to show you the New Testament counterpart. And we're going to start doing this in Proverbs so you can make the correlation between the two as they come up. I want to show you the New Testament passage that goes right along with Proverbs chapter 10 and where we're at today. And it's very important for us to see this one too, though we can get a context of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18 through 22 uh, by our New Testament passage. So I want you now to turn over to the book of James, and I want you to come to James chapter 3. We're going to read it. And here's what it says. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships, which, though they be so great, and are driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about uh, with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Uh, even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it def, uh, defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on the fire of hell. And every kind of beast, and of bird, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is unruly, evil, full of deadly poison. Wherewith bless we God, even the Father, and wherewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth, proceeding blessings and cursings, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endureth with knowledge, or excuse me, and endued with knowledge among you, let him show out of good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Now that's a great verse, and it goes right along with where we're at today. And I want to break this passage in James down first real quickly so that we can better understand when we get into it. And I'm going to do this, and you may want to put this in your Bible uh, by James because it'll help you if you're ever going to teach on it or whatever. But this is a great passage which really opens up Proverbs chapter 10. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to in verse 3 and 4, and it talks about the, the, the bridle of, of a, a horse bridle, which is also known as a bit, and a ship's rudder, which is also known as a helm. And what it says in verse 3 and 4 is that a horse is a huge animal. It can go six, 700 pounds. A bit is no longer than about three or four or five inches long. You put it into the space between the horse's teeth when you have reins on it, and that big horse is guided by which way you pull on the reins because it pulls into his teeth and gets his attention and gets the direction. 
an aircraft carrier can be five football fields long, but it's turned and it, it's, it moves in directions by something that is, uh, you know, one-eighth or one-tenth of a fragment of a size of the whole ship, which we know is a rudder. And what it's saying here basically is this, that the tongue is just like that. Just like the bit in a horse will direct that horse which way it goes, and the rudder or a helm of a ship will direct that ship in what direction it goes, your tongue, which is a little member inside your big mouth, <laughs> will always push the right direction whichever way it wants you to go. And that's a very key thing to understand. The next thing is in verse 5 and 6. And now we see the destructive power of what we say. It's like in 5 and 6, even the tongue is a little member, it boasts as great things. And it's like a fire that kindleth. And of course, a fire that will burn and destroy everything around it by what you say or what you do. We're going to get into all this here in a little bit. I'm just kind of laying the context. Verse 7. It talks about how that a man can tame a lion, he can tame a bear, he can tame all kinds of wild animals. <clears throat> but when you get into verse 8, only God can tame the tongue. Bible talks about in Romans chapter 5 that our throat is an open sepulcher. Bible talks about in Romans chapter 5 verse 13 that the tongue is of deceit and, and uh, the poison of asp is under our lips. And it shows us that uh, destructive power of what we say and what comes out of our mouth, which is guided by our tongue. In verses 9 and 10, <clears throat> in verses 9 and 10, it says, therewith, uh, therewith the tongue, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith we curse we men, <clears throat> which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursings. My brethren, these uh, things ought not so to be. Now, that's a great two verses. You know what it says? And you see this all the time. God's people who bless God out of one side of their mouth and will rip you up out of the other side of their mouth. You see it all the time. It's, these things are <clears throat> probably the most prevalent things you're going to deal with when you get into Christianity. So you need to understand it. Verse 11 and 12. <clears throat> and he comes on down through here and he says, it, note the fountain. Uh, we covered that fountain back in chapter 10, verse 11. The well of life, the water of life. How that out of the belly, out of his belly cometh living waters. And what comes out of our mouth needs to be the things of the word of God. And what he's saying here is that you don't find a fountain that will give you bitter water and sweet water at the same time. You don't find a fig tree that'll give you olives at the same time. You don't find a vine tree that'll give you figs. And you don't get salt water and fresh water uh, out of the same ocean. Simply what he's saying is this. As Christians, people should expect something from us, and that's what they should get. They should get out of us what Christians are supposed to put out. And when it doesn't, it becomes a confusing thing, and it becomes a problem, and then, of course, it leads to other areas that you can know where it goes from there. Now, with that introduction out of James, <clears throat> we're going to be in a better position now to get the most out of our passage. So let's go back to Proverbs <clears throat> chapter 10 and just pick it up in verse 18. <clears throat> it says, He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth slander is a fool. Now, there's two things here I, I want us to see. And uh, it's very important to see. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5, that a man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. <clears throat> now, that's not always true, <clears throat> but it can be true in many cases uh, because there's people out there in life, and there's all too many of them, who will mask 
of their hatred for you by lying lips. They'll tell you one thing, <clears throat> but only to hide their true feelings. And we've all had people in our life that were nice to our face, but would stab you in the back. In most cases, it's always a case of envy. Somebody that's jealous of you or something that you have. And they're nice to your face, but really <clears throat> resent you because, as I said, you may have something they want. They may envy what you have and where you live or the job that you have or the car you drive uh, in a worldly sense. I've seen it in Christianity where they do it with people who maybe uh, know the Bible pretty well or are involved in ministry and they're not. <clears throat> you see it all the time. Many times it's because they want to be like you. And they want to be like you and they can't be like you because they're not willing to do what you did to get to be like you. So they envy you and jealous of you and wind up hating you. And uh, your success, as they perceive it, shows them their failure. Now you see this, and I don't, <clears throat> don't take this the wrong way because I'm going to spread it out here all across the way. But you see this a lot with women, on other, with other women. Uh, it's very common. There's some women who if they go to a party and another woman has the same dress on that they have, they'll leave. Well, I don't know what that is. I I mean, I I would, if you all showed up dressed like me, I'd think you were a smart dresser. That's how I would look at it, you see? But women don't look at it that way. Somebody gets the same dress that they got on at the same party or they go to church or something like that, they'll probably leave the church, never come back again, you know? But that's just the way it is. And uh, you'll find that many times that uh, uh, they, uh, the, the, if, if a woman is very pretty and she's very popular, and another woman maybe and could be just as pretty, but in her mind she thinks she's not, then she starts feeling, you know, uh, that, and she starts resenting that, and she says, why don't people tell me I'm beautiful? Why don't people be, I'm not, I'm not popular with people, and they'll get jealous of that, and um, in time, you know, they're nice to your face and they'll smile and they'll say all kinds of stuff, but they'll tear you down behind your back. It's always stupid stuff, but that's what it is. Most of you have kids that are coming into the teenage years. I'll tell you something you got to watch. <clears throat> because we already know the Bible says there's people that will tell one thing out of one side of their mouth and something else out, and your kids will do that. Your kids will come to church and they'll remember all their Bible verses. They'll do everything they want to do. And that will lull you into thinking that, boy, I got the most perfect kid in the world. Let me tell you something, parents. There are no perfect kids in the world. And you'll catch them being nice here, but when they get back in school or in their Sunday school class or with their little girlfriends and they don't like it, they don't like this, they can be caught into that just like anybody else. So you have to watch those things. I've seen this concept mostly among preachers. Pastors can be like a bunch of little schoolgirls. They can be like a bunch of little sixth graders. <clears throat> I haven't been to what they call a fellowship meeting for probably 40 years. And I'll never care about ever going to one again. We used to be part, years and years and years ago, the church that I was associated with was part of the Baptist Bible Fellowship in Springfield, Missouri. And every year they have what they call Fellowship Week at graduation in May. And all the preachers who send their kids go down there, you know, and it's a big fellowship week, and all the pastors go down, and uh, they preach. They got, they got guys preaching down there every night, the, the, the guys who are the forefront of the fellowship at that particular time. And uh, everybody sits down there. Everybody sees their old friends. Everybody goes out to eat. Everybody goes to the church. place is packed up. It's nothing more than a gossip session. 
It's nothing more than catching up on the latest Peter's dirt on this guy's church. Everybody's, the guy's up there preaching, every pastor down there is ticked off because he thinks he should be up there preaching. It's nothing but a big game. And I only went down when I did go down is because the church I was with paid my way and I, did, I went to a movie. I didn't even go to those places. I went out to eat. That's where I saw Rocky one went down to the fellowship meeting. That fight in there was much better than the fight was going over to Baptist Bible Fellowship, I want to tell you. But I've seen it all my life. And all this comes from an inner insecurity with pastors. They're not secure with who they are. They're not secure with other pastors, with other churches. And I've seen preachers resent other preachers and other churches because they had a very successful ministry and, and the guy pastor couldn't get anything going or keep it going. And so they, they to elevate themselves and make themselves feel like they're really special, they go around all the time tearing down somebody else. I'll never forget a number of years ago, before most of you were born, they were having the presidency of Baptist Bible Fellowship. And, the Baptist, and one guy who was right up the street from on Blue Ridge here, at, uh, used to be the uh, Blue Ridge Baptist Temple, his name was Parker Daly. Parker Daly was a great preacher. I like Parker Daly. And uh, he was a great, and he was a no-nonsense guy. He was, a, he was, talk about old school. He was so old school, he still wore knickers. I mean, this guy was old school of old school. And he could preach the paint off the wall, man. He was a great preacher. And he wanted to run for the fellowship. So what you do when you run for president of the fellowship is you call all your buddies because they vote you in. So he calls all of his friends that were, uh, supposedly his friends, and asking them to vote for him. And all of them were saying, we're going to vote for you, Parker. We're going to this. Yeah, we're the guy for the job. And at the same time, they all were talking about him behind his back, didn't want him, had somebody else they were going to put in, but they played that game. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. That's why there's no politics in this church. There never has been, there never will be. What you see is what you get. I could care less who's got what. I'm happy for them. If you've got a McDonald's in yours, I do envy that because Big Macs are really the way to go. But other than that, that's where my envy stops. I don't really care. You don't have a, you don't have a gym. We don't have a, you got a gym. We don't have one. That's fine. We can run the stairs if you want. We've got a long hallway back there you can trot down there. we got one. You just can't see it. Those things don't bother me. What we have, honestly, what we have, if you got it, that's great. But if you don't have it, we got your beat. You know what we got? We got the book, brother. And that's all we need. I don't need a gym. This, you get in this book, it'll give you all the exercise you need. And that's how I look at it. Now, the second thing he says here, last part of that verse, he that utter a slander is a fool. Now, here we have a person who, who makes no attempt to mask their ungodly ways. The first guy, he masked it, see? He says, oh, I love you, brother, and then he nails you. But these kind of people, this fool, uh, they make no pretense about the fact of their ungodly ways. These kind of people operate 24-7, thousand times a day in their destructive work. Uh, you'll remember uh, uh, that we covered this in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the seven things that God hated, or the six things that God hated, and the seventh was an abomination, which was the sowing discord among the brethren. Uh, that's, the favorite, that's the favorite sin of God's people. And this will be deliberately and maliciously lying or misconstruing the facts and the truth about somebody or something. Uh, this goes on in every office that you work in. 
If you work at GM, you'll find it there. Some of you work at Ford, you know it's there. It's everywhere you go, and it's in churches too. Everywhere you go, you're going to find it. That's just the way that it is. And, you know, these kind of, these kind of people will always hang out together. Uh, they seem, uh, I've seen whole churches where uh, the, the, the women ran the church, and it was like, a, oh, you talk about a, a, a cesspool. It was like a commode that long over needed time to be flushed. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And it was all right there. And no matter what happened, everybody ganged together and all had their say in it. People, people like these in the Bible and Proverbs are called talebearers. And Proverbs has much to say about them. And there's thousands of jokes about them. They only knew the jokes that preachers among preachers, I've heard them all over the years, you know. I remember one time a pastor, two pastors were talking years ago, and they had a woman who was in a church that was a, a gossiper above all gossipers. She was the mother of all gossipers. And she, one pastor was telling another pastor that he was sitting on a platform and, 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 a, and a evangelist had just preached and the associate pastor was sitting next to him and this lady came down in the invitation and she looked up and she, she said to the pastor, Pastor, I know I've got a problem with gossip and I'm going to lay out, tonight I'm laying my tongue on the altar of God. And the associate looked over and says, I think we're going to need a bigger altar. <laughs> they go on and on and on. I mean, it's incredible incredible we call them vacuum cleaner christians they suck up every piece of dirt everywhere that there is and except they put it back out again and these kind of people i mean uh, uh, the bible is filled with talking about them proverbs eleven thirteen says a talebearer revealeth secrets but he that is a faithful spirit concealeth the matter you see somebody spiritual will pray about it they'll realize that they have an obligation if they if they hear something that that's a brother or a sister or a lost person, instead of spreading it around and making it worse, you, you pray about it. You conceal the matter. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. I always like that verse because I don't know if you know it or not, but in combat, the worst wound you can get is a belly wound. And the worst wound you can get in life is slander. It's like going up to the Empire State Building, taking 10,000 goose feathers, throwing them up in the air, and then trying to get them all back. And that's what slander, that's what gossip does. That's why it's a terrible wound. Proverbs 20, verse 19 says, He that goeth about as a talebearer, reveal his secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. Now there's a great verse that says, if you want to do what's right, you stay away from them. Don't meddle with them. Don't get in with them. Don't listen to what they say. Proverbs 26, verse 20 says, Where no wood is, there is fire goeth out. So where there is no tail bear, the strife ceases. As coals are to a burning, uh, as, uh, as coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to continual strife. The words of a tail bear are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Burning lips and a wicked heart are like a pot shed covered with silver dross. He that hateth dissembleth with his lips and layeth up deceit within him. Now, there's a great verse that it talks about the fact that, that, uh, that these people are like dead wood. And when there's no wood, there's no fire. Hey, and mark it in your Bible. That goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, at the judgment seat of Christ, where a person who's not fruitful and doesn't do what's right, they build on the foundation wood, hay, and stubble. And that wood here is adding onto the fire of keeping the thing going. 
Verse 24 says, a talebearer will dissemble with the lips. They'll disassemble you and your character slander through deceit. The Bible says, the Bible says that a contentious man kindleth strife. And now there's a great verse here that says that every 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 preacher ought to have when he preaches. And it's in verse 20 down here. It says, where no wood is, the fire goeth out. And you're preaching. You know what it ought to be designed to do? Clear out the dead wood. Because when there's no net and there's no dead wood, you got nothing to burn. And when there's nothing to burn, the strife ceases. Now, that's a great verse if you ever pastor or you ever preach. You're preaching ought to be designed. You don't beat on it all the time, but that'll be designed in its interior that it gets rid of the dead wood because dead wood starts to burn and causes contention. Then you got problems. What Proverbs is such a practical book. Look at verse 19. In a multitude of words, there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Now here's, a, here's the teaching, and this is a great practical teaching. Here. A man that's a fool will never know when to shut up. Now, ladies, I don't want anybody elbowing their husband during this. He won't know when to hold his tongue. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 3 says, A fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. He just keeps talking. You've all met people. I've got several in mind right now. Fortunately, nobody in our church. But we've all got people in our life and uh, that we've all met that they're an expert on everything. Somebody starts to talk about something and they jump right in. Nobody asks them. They're an expert. Well, I've done this. I can do this. Well, I've done that. I work for the CIA. I work for the FBI. I work for this. I work for the Army. I work for this. I did this. I did that. I had a guy one time here that, that thought he was a great cook. <laughs> and, and, and no matter what you'd say about food, he could cook better. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I got four or five guys in this church that I'd put any woman in your cooking up against any time. And I love you, lady, but I got some cookers. But he wasn't one of them. But anytime you talk about food, I remember one time, you know, we always cooked the ribs at Memorial Day, and I always have guys come out and help me. I was dreading it, dreading it. I had to do it because I needed help. But I got up there and I said, if you'd like to come and help me, oh, he caught me before he got back. His specialty was ribs. <laughs> and he was going to show me how the right way to do it. He hadn't been to one of our, he hadn't tasted one of my ribs. He hadn't been to any of our barbecues. And yet he had the expertise that he made the best ribs and was under the assumption that they were better in mine. Now, they might be better in yours, but when you say they're better in mine, we're going to fight it out. I was sweating it. I didn't want him to leave the church over ribs. But I didn't want him to come cook either. Because I knew what was going to happen. He's going to get a spatula right between the teeth. My guys know what we're doing. We've done it for so many years. We got it down to a science. I don't need some expert telling us how to cook ribs. You've had my ribs. Are they good ribs? I ain't asking that again. I'm offended at this point. I hope you all get coal in your stocking for Christmas. This guy was such an egotist. He told me that he was in the Army, which he probably was, and he was in basic training. And in basic training, they came down and pulled him out of basic to go cook for the President of the United States. 
The Army could never get anything right like that. You be the best cook in the Army, you know where you wind up? You wind up being a clerk. You be the best typer and clerk in the Army, you wind up being a cook. But the idea that they're going to come down in basic and rip this guy out and take him for the president of cook for him, I... I tasted his cooking one time. I wish he would cook for Obama. (laughs) Have you all met people like that? I mean, you want to talk guns. They know everything there is about guns. You want to talk fishing. They know everything there is to know about fishing. You talk about hunting. They know everything there is to know about hunting. Drive me nuts. And, and you run into women the same way. You run into women that, you know, somebody says, I, I don't know how many times somebody's been up and said, I, I, I need, and boy, somebody will stand and say, I've done that, I've done that, I've, I've done that a lot. I know how to do that. I've done it all the time. I've done it a thousand times. I can do it. Everybody does it. We don't know when to shut up. First Timothy 5, verses 11, 12, and 13 says, But the younger widows refuse. For they, he's talking about widows here. For they have begun to wax wanton against Christ. They will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith, and with they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. You see, once you, you see what the problem is? Because people who are like this never do anything at all in the ministry. You know why? Because they're idle. They're always invested in the wrong things. Now, I'll tell you something else. I picked on the guys for a minute and picked on the gals, but I'll tell you, there's no more guilty of this than preachers. Preachers have a tendency to keep talking when there's nothing left to say. They'll go on and they'll go on and they'll go on and they'll go on. I've been in some sermons when a guy went for 45 minutes or an hour, and I, w- I hope he knew what he was talking about because I sure didn't. <laughs> Had no clue. I went one time to a guy who did a funeral, and the guy's doing a funeral, and he was chewing gum all the way through his sermon on the free funeral. Now, I'm a gum chewer. I-, I think gum chewing is great, but not when you're doing a funeral. I mean, you get stuck in your teeth, and it. it, it and you're trying to, and at a funeral, anyhow, anytime. But you know, you're making a serious point, and somebody's died, and you're trying to give comfort, and all they can see is the gum squishing out of the side of your mouth. It's stupid. But that's the way people are. They just do dumb things. And the more you keep talking, the more you reveal who you really are and what you don't know, because you just keep talking foolishly. Proverbs eighteen thirteen. This is another good one. He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. That's speaking to an issue before you have all the facts. And we're famous for that. Let me tell you something. That one will get you killed, brother, because there's two sides to every story. And you just take the side you want to take because you don't like the person that the story is being told about. You're no better than the person that's telling it. Now look at the second part of verse 19. But he that refraineth his lips is wise. Proverbs 13, 23 says, A prudent man concealeth knowledge, but the heart of a fool proclaimeth foolishness. Proverbs 21, 23 says, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from trouble. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool uttereth all his mind, 
but a wise man keepeth it in till after to afterwards. Like a guy who said, why don't you teach them all of the Bible you know? That'll take you about 10 minutes. Then what are you going to do with the rest of the time? Now, you see this all the time in the, in, in the, in the movies. Remember Kung Fu? That guy that was the Kung Fu guy? When the martial arts were really big? And it's all Oriental guys, and Oriental guys are supposed to really be smart. You ever notice they never said anything? They didn't get into conversation. They just stood there like this while everybody else talked. Only time they did anything when they kicked your nose through the back of your head. <laughs> but they never talked. The only thing you ever heard was little grasshopper. That's all you got out of the guy. <laughs> because symbolically, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is not talking all the time. Could you imagine a kung fu guy? And he doesn't need to talk. He can wow everything he needs to do. He doesn't need to say anything. He doesn't need to talk. His actions will speak louder than his words. But a fool, he just goes on and on. Could you imagine a kung fu guy? Nobody would think he could do anything. It's that silence thing, man, you watch out for. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 16 through 18 says, Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of a wise man are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. There it is. The art of learning to speak through silence. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. Now, you ought to not be able to always talking, but when you do speak, and there's times to speak, then you need to say something. You need to have substance to it. You surely need to know what you're talking about. Let the biblical principles form your, your speech. 2 Timothy 1.13 talks about us having sound words. Titus 2.8 talks about those sound words forming sound speech. And that comes from 1 Timothy 1.10, you and I having sound doctrine. And in Proverbs 3 verse 21 says that that will produce a sound wisdom. And that's how you speak. Last part of that verse says, one sinner destroyeth much good. It only takes one Christian with a wicked, gossiping, slandering tongue to destroy much of the work that God gets done. But what a great principle in verse 18 there in the first part where it says wisdom is better than weapons of war. Because wisdom will tell you how to, what battles to avoid. Wisdom will tell you when to speak and when not to speak. Wisdom will tell you when to shut up. Hey, there's been times that I've been preaching and I had things where I wanted to say more and just as sure as I'm standing there, God said, that's it, shut off, you're done. And you listen to that and you're done. And there's been times that I had something I wanted to say and wasn't going to say it and God's spoken to me just like I'm standing here speaking to you where he said, nope, put it all out. Give them everything I told you to give them. Now's the time to do it. But you've got to listen to what the Holy Spirit of God is doing. What a great principle that is. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Learn how to use the weapon of wisdom. Learn how to pick your battles of what you get into. You don't just wade into every fight out there because it's a right fight. You've got to be able to understand there's discretion you have to use. I call it being smarter than the problem. And that just comes with wisdom and that comes with age and time. Well, if you stay in the Bible. Now look at verse 20. 
The tongue of the just is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is little worth. It says the tongue of the just is choice silver. Now, this is a great principle of what a Christian should be and what he should talk about and what should come out of our mouth because silver in the Bible will always be connected to two things in the Bible if you want to use the Bible to define them. The first one will be redemption. You'll find it in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 32, uh, 21, 32. And then, of course, the famous passage in Matthew 27, 3, where Christ himself was sold for 30 pieces of silver. So what comes out of a Christian's mouth? What should he talk about? We ought to talk about what God has done for him, the redemption that God has put into his life, his death on the cross, you know, uh, his his personalization of, of his own redemption, telling people about God's plan of redemption. To be redeemed in the Bible means that God buys something back. God gave man salvation. Man, through his own bad choices, lost that salvation. So you know what God did? God redeemed him. You know what that means? God redeemed what was fallen. He bought back what was lost, you and me. That's a great story. The greatest book in the Bible that illustrates that is the book of Ruth. Ruth is a picture of you and me. She's a Moabite. She's an enemy of God's people. But she wants to become part of it, so she becomes a proselyte. And then she, may, she meets a man named Boaz, and Boaz is a type of Christ. But you see, she's got some problems that she, she can't, he can't marry her because of her connection and what has to be done under the law. So he has to redeem her. So he's called a kinsman redeemer. And when he redeemed her, he married her. You know what I needed in my life before I got saved? I need a kinsman redeemer. I need somebody to redeem what was fallen in me. And my Boaz did. Tremendous principle. That's what you ought to talk about. Telling people God's plan of redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, For as much as we, you know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversations received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness. Those are the things that we need to talk about. Now, the second aspect of silver uh, is at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Bible says that when you got saved, you lay a foundation in your life. And on that foundation, there's three things that you should build. And those three things are the greatest example of a complete Christian life there could be. The first thing you build upon that foundation is gold. Gold in the Bible is always representative of Christ's deity. So the first thing you do after you get saved is you build a relationship with God. You find out everything you can about Him. You do that here through discipleship, Thursday night Bible study, Sunday morning, one-on-one with me or somebody that you're working with. Discipleship too, whatever level you want to go up through. And the first thing you do is you learn about Christ. Now, the second thing you build on that foundation in the order given in there in 1 Corinthians 3 is gold, silver. The next thing you learn after you learn about Christ is you learn what he did for you. That's your redemption. You learn the price that was paid on Calvary's cross. And believe me, it cost a lot more than 30 pieces of silver. You learn what he did for you. You learn tremendously what impact uh, it had on the world. But he died for you. 
And then the third thing that you put on that foundation is precious stone. Malachi chapter 3 and other places in the Bible, that's people. And I've always looked at it, that's an incredible analogy down there. Because gold, deity, silver, redemption, precious stones, people. Here's how it works. When you get saved, if you go through a proper growth process in your life and nothing short changes you and you don't get off track, here's the way it should work. Now, I'm not saying something else won't come in. Along the line, you may trade this for drugs. You may trade this for a a relationship with an unsaved person. You may trade this for for a a, a job with lots of money or whatever the case may be. But, But here's how it should work. When you get saved and you lay the foundation, the first thing on that foundation is gold. When you learn about who God is and you learn everything that you can about God, you cannot help in the process of learning about God, you learn what God did for you. You can't separate the two. It's gold, silver, precious stones. When you learn what God has done, uh, uh, who God is, you cannot help but learn what he has done for you. When you learn about the gold, who he was, the silver, what he did for you, you cannot help telling somebody else about it. There's your precious stones. That's the process. That's the process. It's an incredible concept. All right, last part of verse 20. The tongue of the just is as choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is little worth. Worth little in our language, the way we talk about it. And never was there a truer statement. A person who is caught up in gossip and slander and bike back, backbiting and a tail bear, uh, they will be absolutely worthless to the work of Christ and the ministry, and I've never seen it fail. And it goes back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, the verse I just gave you, and it's because they're idle. They won't do anything for God. They talk about everything else, keep throwing dead wood on the fire, and it just keeps everything going. Now, there's a reason for that, and I want to get a little philosophical with you here for a few minutes, and this will help some of you maybe understand what we do here, what the ministry is, and how it all works. In a ministry, and the ministry is real simple, and I, I have to bring everything down to a simple level for myself, and it seems to work for most of you. Uh, in the ministry... The ministry is nothing more but simply building things. That's all it is. You build people, and in turn, people build a church, and a church builds a ministry. But along with that, when it comes to building people, you develop things in people all the time. You develop skills. You develop abilities. You develop people's spiritual gifts. You develop God's work and God's plan in their life. And that's really what, in its simplest form, a church is supposed to be. Because all of you have abilities. All of you have gifts. All of you have skills. And and let's not pretend for a moment that I ever think that all of you are going to be preachers someday. I don't think that at all. I think very few of you will ever get to that point. Uh, I think that you all will uh, will be able to preach. I think that you'll all be great communicators. I think that you're all uh, will come to the point where you could disciple somebody. You could you could work with people. You could help them through their problems. In other words, there's a lot of things that you can do. You got to be careful when uh, and preaching is so important in a church. But you got to keep it all balanced. You don't want people to think that they're a failure or they haven't met the spiritual goal if they don't be able to get up behind a pulpit and preach. Some of you never will. But that does not mean that you're not invaluable. 
My job, the job of any church, the job of any pastor is to recognize what you do have and help you develop that. There are so many things that need to be done in a ministry that it takes so many different people that have nothing to do with standing behind a pulpit and being able to preach. It has to do with being able to, uh, to, to make yourself available. My job, the job of any church is to develop those skills. But a pastor has to see them first. He has to recognize them in you. And that only comes because you have a relationship together. You can see what your abilities are. You can see what your, your aspects are. I was over at Steve's thing the other night, and, and there's a gal there that he, got, he hired that works the counter, and, and she is, uh, she is she's one of the funnest people to be around, just a young gal. And, you know, and she's, she's always bubbly and always talking and everything. And the, I, I, when I met her, I thought to myself, and Steve and I talked about it this morning. We said the exact same thing. We hadn't talked since I seen her. I said to myself, you know what? If that girl ever got saved, she would be the best Christian you could ever see because she's got everything in her. She's unsaved and nothing gets her down. She's unsaved and she's always happy. Well, I know some of God's people that are saved have the aristocracy of heaven and the word of God in their lap and they're on their way to heaven. They're the most miserable people you ever saw in your life. Amen. But you, you see those things in somebody. And when I see them, I always relate them back to what that person could do if they just got into the word of God. And when I see you as saved people, and I see God begin to tweak those little things in your life that you don't even see. I see you do something that you don't even think what you're doing, but I see it. My job is to develop those things because the job of the ministry in its simplest form for a pastor is to build things, build things. And you know what? There's two kinds of people in every church. Those that will help me build people and those who will help me help destroy people. But there's only two. There's those who want to help the pastor build what he's to build, and then there's those who want to undo what he's trying to do. The great example of this in the Bible is, is back in 2 Samuel 15, and I call this the Absalom syndrome. We're going to get into this in the people ministry here in a couple months. Absalom was David's son. And you see, every one of these principles come into play. He was David's son, and yet all the while David was on the throne trying to build the nation of Israel and be the king of Israel, Absalom, his own son now, going behind his back, secretly and covertly, trying to tear down what David was doing. It's incredible. He'd stand down there at the gate, and when the people were coming in to go see David or go to do what they're doing, he'd meet them first, and he'd ask them what their business was, and they'd tell them. And then he'd start to say, well, the king doesn't care about your problems Oh, if I were only king, I could really help you. And he covertly began to take apart what David was trying to do. In reality, he was jealous of David. He was jealous of what had God had given to David and what God was doing with David and what he wasn't doing with Absalom. And he hated David for it. Oh, Lester Roloff, Don beat home with the Lord many, many years ago. His favorite message I ever heard him preach was on Absalom. And the title of his sermon was, And the Mule Walked On. Because Absalom, in his demise, is riding a mule when he's riding through the thing here trying to get away. And he got beautiful hair and he gets caught in an oak branch and he strangles himself and the mule kept going. And his point of the thing was, the pastors, that you know what, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there's Absaloms. If you keep doing what's right, 
The mule walked on. Not one absalom ever stopped the work of God. Tremendous message. But I want to tell you something. The absalom did not die out in 950 B.C. By that passage, if you look at my Bible, and you better not, I got 15 names written by that verse. Just to remind me that they're still around. I look at verse 21. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. Now, here's an Old Testament example in Proverbs of the New Testament principle found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, in dealing with feeding God's people. He says this, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but by willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when a chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now there's a crown associated with this one. We know there's five crowns in the Bible. You can get the gentleman's seat of Christ. Now there's Proverbs chapter 10, verse 21, and a New Testament practical application of feeding the people of God. In the Bible, in the New Testament, in the church, you have what is called elders. Now, elders can be a man or a woman. An elder is not an office. The two offices in a New Testament local church are deacon and pastor, and we know that no women are permitted to be part of that. But an elder is not an office. An elder is a spiritual position or level in the church that either a man and a woman can get to. And the Bible says very clearly that it's a level of spiritual maturity that a Christian gets to that they begin now to take part of the load off the pastor. And the Bible says in verse 2, they become an overseer. In other words, they take oversight. In other words, they take part of the ministry. And they begin to do that because they recognize what the pastor's trying to do. They recognize what the goal of the church is. They've grown up and they're learning and they're maturing. Now they want to take part of that to get the job done. And that's exactly how it works. I'll be very honest. My goal, my goal is to build as many of you into that uh, spiritual level uh, as I can. And it doesn't come just because you've been in the church for 20, 30 years. It's a progression of growing spiritually. Uh, that you on a daily basis, you know, you work and you teach people the Word of God. And you, you feed them on all levels. Uh, in John chapter 21, when he was talking to Peter down down around verse 16, he said to Peter, he says, Peter, feed my lambs. Those are baby Christians. And then he says in the next verse, feed my sheep. Those are older Christians. Whatever level God's people are on, it's our job to feed them. And a pastor who understands that realizes that there's no way that he can do that in building a church. Now, I told I wanted to get philosophical here for a moment. So we're in this. Let me, let me develop this for you just a little bit. I, you've heard me say it many, many times, in everything that we do as Christians, there's a model in the church. And it seems that uh, 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 people want to forget the models where, when it doesn't suit them, but in my mind, model's a model, and I always try to follow them. But there's a model for building a church in the New Testament. In other words, there's a way to build a church. And simplistically, in its easiest form, the basic fundamental way to build a church for a pastor is by example. Most pastors never see this. A pastor has to set the example on all levels. You have to lead from the front. You don't lead from the back. You never ask your people to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. You're always in the forefront and you're willing to do it. A good combat commander will be the first boots on the ground and the last boots off. You don't lead from the rear. You got to lead from the front. 
And you can never you can never lead people without being there where they can see what you're doing. You can't lead without being there and totally involved. And that's just the way it works. But people can't get that. And when you do that in time, you become aware of the good people that God has given you. And you then invest whatever time it takes. You, some of you have heard me say to you when you've come over and we've talked, whatever it takes, whatever time it takes, I'll make whatever investment in you that it needs to be made because I understand and believe that you have what it takes and I want to help get you there. As you reproduce yourself and you put yourself in them, they pick up the load and in time, instead of you feeding the flock, one person, you have 150 people doing it. And it keeps moving up the levels. That's the way it works. That frees the pastor up to do the work of a pastor and that is to invest in more people and then to turn them over to the elders to bring them along and help them bring them through. Because the Bible says the lips of the righteous feed many. And it's your job as well as my job to get to the position that you feed many on whatever level that is. Now that's how you do it. And any other way is a waste of your time, and you don't have to worry about God because he won't be part of it. A foolish man, fools die for the want of wisdom. A foolish man, in this case we're talking about pastors, will die never seeing that in his ministry. He'll never learn the process of building a New Testament church because he'll never really help build one. He'll go to Bible college someplace, well, they'll never teach you how to build a church. You're being taught the ministry by people who have never been in the ministry. His inability to train from within, build leaders, build elders, build them up. He'll see it in somebody's ministry. He wants it, but he can't ever get there and won't change about what he's doing and what it takes to really get where he wants to get. And in most cases, he's unteachable. He hates reproof. He hates instructions. He hates corrections. He won't take it. He won't follow it. He says, I can do this my way. I don't need the Bible. I'm not going to follow the pattern. I'm not going to do it the New Testament biblical way. I'm going to go out and do it on my own. We saw this in chapter 10 in verse 17 last week, how that, 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 that he that is in the way of life keepeth instructions, but he that refuses reproveth error. There's a right way to do everything in the Bible. And Absalom's a great example of that. Oh, Absalom was going in and saying, oh, you're my father. You're my dad. I love you. Happy birthday. Oh, yeah, you're great. You're my dad. I'm your son. But all the time he was trying to do behind his back to take his kingdom. There's always a right way to do things and there's always a wrong way to do things. But if you want to build a church and have a ministry, you have to build people. And those people have to get on board and you bring them up to those spiritual levels where it's just not one guy teaching other people. Other people are taking the same levels and doing something with it. Look at verse 22. The blessings of the Lord it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow to it. Now this is one of the simplest yet greatest principles, I think, in all the Word of God uh, that a Christian can ever have. It really is. And if you see this and understand this, whenever you do, you can bet you've got wisdom and understanding. It's real simple. And it's a fitting closure for our passage today uh, on the tongue and its power, good or bad. Now, we are, when we are doing right, and you have the blessings of God in your life, our lives, then I know you know that you're rich beyond compare. 
Those are the true riches the Bible talks about. Nothing in this world can compare with it. No new car, no new house, no new job, no great salary increase will ever outdo the blessings of God in your life. It's just that simple. In Obama's distortive form of government, <clears throat> he wants to take what the rich have labored for and worked for and give it to people who haven't ever worked. He calls it sharing the wealth. That's his plan. He wants to take from those who have worked hard, who've got a lot and deserve it because they work for it, and then take that and give it to the people who won't do anything. But you know what? In a spiritual sense, that's exactly what we as Christians are supposed to do. Because the unsaved world doesn't have anything, and if you're saved this morning, you should have it all. And you talk about a biblical spiritual format of sharing the wealth, that's exactly what it should be. That's what April did with Jessica. That's why she's coming over tomorrow night. She saw something in her life. She had a need in hers, lost her husband 10 days ago. I can't even imagine that. Struggling all by herself, a little two-year-old daughter. And she needed something, and you know what? Somebody decided to share the wealth. Tomorrow night she comes over. She's not going to get the wealth shared. She's going to get the whole bank. She's going to think she landed in Fort Knox. You see... What God gives us, when you give it to others, when we become a blessing to other people, then we make them rich. And we share the wealth in a spiritual sense. Giving what you have to those who don't have anything. That's a lot what we're going to do in a physical sense at Restart today. People who are down and out don't have anything. Kids, that when your kids are opening up 28,000 Christmas presents and having everything that they want, some kids will just have one or two. They don't have to take a generic thing, whatever it is, but they'll be happy with it because they got something. They'll probably, in many cases, be happy, more happy with theirs than some of your kids will be happy with yours because 20 minutes after they're open, they can't even find it anymore. It's all lost in a wrapping paper. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. It says, go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet. That's what we do here. We eat the fat of the Word of God. We drink the sweet of the Word of God. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet. And then it says, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. There's people out there today that have nothing prepared in their life from God. You and I have the riches and the blessings. If we're right with God, we have all the riches and the blessings, and we're rich and wealthy when it comes to a spiritual sense. And yet, we want to hoard it like some billionaire wants to hoard his money. When actually, the blessings of God to the world is just simply taking what God has given you and giving it to somebody else. Edifying them. Lifting them up. Feeding them on all levels, whatever it may be. You know, over the years, I, I've seen in pastoring and ministering eight fundamental abilities or skills or whatever you want to call it, truths that, that, a, that a pastor has to have if he's ever going to reach people. And uh, when the Bible says, feed my lambs, feed my sheeps, there's a vast difference between feeding lambs and feeding sheeps. They don't eat the same stuff. They don't think on the same level. Older Christians and younger Christians, younger Christians have two different diets they got to have. 
But over the years, I've, I've, I've looked at this and I've thought to myself, you know what, this is such a true thing. And I, I wrote it down in my Bible, nine fundamental truths or abilities that a, a man has to have if he wants to build a church or he wants to pastor or he wants to be in ministry. And the first thing a pastor has to be able to do is he has to be able to relate to his people. You can't, you can't minister to your people living in your ivory office someplace. You can't minister to people when they got to go through three or four people to even get a chance to talk to you. They got a secretary they got to go through, and he's got to do this. And at the end of the day, you got to get put into some second string of pastor over here or some hireling, you know, with staff member that, because the pastor can't see it. Let me tell you something. Everybody in this church has my cell phone number. You can call me anytime, 24-7, whatever you need are. You know why? Because a pastor has to be able to relate to his people. You can't be distant from your people. You got to be one with them. They got to know that, you could, that you're part of their world and you're, they're part of yours. You got to be able to relate to them. Second thing, a pastor has to be able to regenerate. He has to be a soul winner. He has to be able to win people to Christ and set the example for winning people to Christ because that's what a job of a church is to do. When we share the blessings of God with somebody, many times those people are unsaved and they want those. And they know the only way they can get it by keep on coming is by getting saved. So it's a, it's a thing that they trust Christ over. Third thing, he has to be able to educate. Pastor has to be able to teach his people. He has to be able to sit down and lay out and, and put to them exactly uh, in, a, in a clear, simple form what they need to do. They need to, ha- they need to give instructions. If God's people... If they have any one need, it's clear direction. It's clear instructions. They have to be told exactly what God expects of them, and you can't always do that by screaming at them. You have to be able to sit down and teach them one-on-one in small groups. You have to be able to come into a Sunday morning or a Thursday night, and you have to be able to know when to turn it off between preaching and teaching. You have to know how to be able to mix it together to give the teaching, and then you want to emphasize it. You dump a little bit of preaching in, and then you pull it out, and then you bake it with some more teaching for a while. That's what you got to be able to do. Fifth thing, fourth thing, pastor has to be able to duplicate. He has to be able to reproduce himself in somebody else. Your job as a leader in this church is to do the same, these same things, these same nine things. You have to have the ability to relate. You have to have the ability to regenerate. You have to have the ability to educate. You have to have the ability to duplicate. Building yourself into the life of somebody else. The fifth thing, pastor has to know how to elevate. Has to know how to lift people up to, to get, them, get them where they need to be. You know what most people just want? Most people just want to feel that you're special. And most people, that's all they want. And to me, everybody's special because I see the qualities. I don't care if you just walked in day one and you've got some quality that maybe I don't see, but God sees. And that makes you special. The fact that you want to do something for God. You may not know how to do it. You may not know what to do. But the very fact that you want to do it makes you special. Everybody's special. Everybody everybody has potential for God. You may not realize it. You may never even bring it into your life. But the bottom line is, In that aspect, you need to be elevated. You need to get help, whatever you need. You need to get brought up to whatever level you want to get through. The sixth thing, preacher needs to motivate. Now, that's preaching. Preacher has to be a blend between teaching and preaching. A good preacher knows how to mix and match the two that you don't know what he's doing when he's doing it. 
It's the ability to be able to motivate you, to drive you, to get you where you need to be, and to keep you on point and give you the right information and get them moving in the right direction. The seventh thing, a pastor needs to be able to accelerate. It took me 35 years to get a handle on a Bible, and I still don't know it. But you don't have 35 years. You know what my job is? And we do it all the time around here. My job is to take what it took me in 35 years to do and get it to you in five or six, seven, eight years. You got to know how to do that. You got to know how to take what took me 30 years to figure out and get it to you so you can grasp it in a lot less time. You know why? Because my job is to get you accelerated in learning. It isn't about all what I know and how much I know. It's about all that I know and how much I know. And the main goal of me is how do I formulate that down so you can get it in a lot less time than it took me to get it. So you don't have to read all the boring guys that I had to read. So he has to, a minister guy, somebody that's in ministry, a pastor, has to learn to relate. He has to regenerate. He has to educate. He has to duplicate. He has to elevate. He has to motivate. He has to accelerate. Then he has to placate. That's patience. You have to put up a lot of goofy things that people do that will drive you nuts. And the reason you put up with it is because you knew that the first time you got saved, you must have drove God nuts. And if God could stick with me, I can stick with you. And you put up with people and the things they do because you see the value in them. You see that everybody makes mistakes and everybody has downtime and everybody has problems and you don't throw anybody out the window because of the fact they just make common everyday mistakes or they struggle with something. We all struggle with stuff. If God threw all of us out, if God treated us like we treat most of other God's people, we'd all be in trouble. But you've got to learn how to placate. You've got to learn how to put up with it. You've got to learn how to see it for what it is. You've got to look beyond the stupid things that they do and see the core value that God sees. And then the last thing a pastor has to learn to do is delegate. Get you doing something. Give you responsibility. Get you to the place where you are a part of what I'm doing. Taking the load off the ministry. Getting you to be able to be as good at dealing with people as I am. Getting you to be able to take the Word of God and solve their problems. Getting you to the place that it frees me up to deal with more people in this area that I can get more people into your area that the whole thing just keeps going. And it isn't one guy doing it. It isn't a one-man show. It's 150, 100, 200 people, 225, 250 people doing the ministry together. That's how it works. Now look at the last part of verse 22. And addeth no sorrow to it. As God's people, we are to help people not hurt people. We protect them from the things that will hurt them. We don't subject them to it. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there, there is that speaketh like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. You'll either help somebody build up people or you'll go against the pastor and try to tear down what the pastor is trying to build directly or indirectly. You can use your tongue to cut something up or somebody up and rip them apart like a sword and hack them to death, or you can be the spiritual health to them to help them grow and feed them with choice silver that comes out of your mouth. Your choice. In any case, what we really are with God in our hearts will manifest itself on how we treat people and what comes out of our mouth. This time of the year, it's all about giving and gifts. I love it. 
Size 17 and a half, 33 length. It's all about gifts. This afternoon, I'm excited about it. Appreciate everybody did. I hope you all come down. We'll have a great time helping those kids, seeing the joy in their face. After that, it's all about us. Your family, my family, sitting down, enjoying Christmas, having a good time, getting through the holidays, and then getting back to work and doing all we're doing. You're going downtown, red kettles, pop a couple coins in, presents under the trees, Christmas shopping for your loved ones. Man, it's a zoo out there. I mean, you go to the mall, people are packed all over the place. Yesterday was supposed to be the most busy shopping day in the history of the world. It probably was. And I think it's all good. But without question, the greatest gift that we can ever give and ever give someone is the gift that God has given us, the blessings that we have. So many times we're so focused on giving people salvation, which is a good thing, we forget that sometimes people just need the blessings that we have. We share the wealth, the true riches of his wisdom that really make us rich and endow us with God's wisdom and understanding, sharing the wealth, giving others what God has given to you spiritually. That's really what it's all about. So, you know, as we come through these things in Proverbs, I hope you find yourself. Because I look out here and there's young men and young ladies and many of you are well on your way. But I have plans for all of you. You may not have the same plans I have, but my plans will always be to help you be everything God wants you to be. You may have different plans, never fulfill that plan, but in my mind, I see what you could do if you really put yourself to it. And that's the key. Taking what God has given us and giving it to others. Well, we'll hold up there. I'll call you up here in a few minutes for restart people out on the team.